Please take your Bibles and turn them with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. John, chapter 14. So, how do you handle a troubled heart? I'm talking about those moments in your life where your world is rocked to the point of deep distress and anxiety and fear, uh, where, where you feel like your hopes and dreams and expectations are, are being shattered, where everything seems uh, bleak and dark, and there is no light at the end of the tunnel. There is no hope. As we continue our sermon series, Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ, the disciples are feeling that same kind of distress. They have deeply troubled hearts. They are filled with crushing anxiety and fear about the future. We know this because of what Jesus says to them uh, in verse 1. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. That word for troubled in the original language could be translated as disturbed or unsettled or thrown into confusion uh, or, or being stirred up. And later on in this chapter, in verse 27, Jesus also says to them, don't let your hearts be afraid. And their fear is understandable. Everything these disciples had hoped for in a saving Messiah seems to be crumbling. Right? Jesus talks about going away. Uh, He's going to die. He says that one of their number will betray Him. Uh, He says another in their number, their leader, Peter, will deny Jesus Uh, three times before sunrise, uh, the disciples are receiving wave upon wave upon wave of bad news, and they are wavering, their hearts are deeply troubled, and they don't know how they're going to make it. But as we see in today's text, there are overwhelming reasons why we don't need to drown in despair during those moments, reasons why our hearts don't have to remain in a state of troublesomeness. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, preaching on this very passage, said, I I would not confine the comfort Jesus offers to any one form of affliction, for it, this text, it is a balm for every wound. And so, brother or sister, whatever wound you may be struggling with, uh, however your hearts are troubled this morning, I pray that you would be encouraged and comforted by the words of the Master who loves you so much, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. In fact, I've been praying for you uh, this week. I've been praying for the people who would be here to hear this message, uh, that your hearts would swell with hope in response to the hope that Jesus offers in these few verses this morning. So let's hear what Christ has to say to you this morning. Please stand with me now in honor and in reverence for the reading of the words of our God. John chapter 14, and we're going to start in verse 1 and read on down through verse 6. Word of the Lord says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to Myself that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's pray together. 
Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy and inspired word. We thank you that this is not fairy tale. We thank you that this is not fiction. We thank you that this is history, and we thank you that the Bible is his story, the story about Christ. He is the main character. He is the hero. It is all about him. And so, Father, I pray that as we as we go through this text this morning, that you would help us to see and savor Jesus Christ. And in Christ this morning, help us to find hope. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. How remarkable it is that Jesus gives such compassionate and tender attention to the plight of the disciples. Let's remember as we read this that Jesus is facing a way bigger trial than all of them as he faces the cross. And yet Jesus nevertheless seeks to give his help and encouragement even though they should have been doing that for Jesus. It kind of reminds me of where we were last week in John chapter 13. Uh, nobody is washing anybody's feet. They all should be tripping over themselves to, to serve Jesus and wash his feet. Nobody does that. Jesus is the one now who gets up and is concerned about them and ministers to them and serves them in washing their feet. And you think about these guys here that Jesus is dealing with. Uh, these are the same disciples who have repeatedly failed Jesus over and over again and will in a few hours let him down big time. And yet, Jesus is still concerned about their pain, and he wants to help them. You think about how gracious and loving our God is. I want you to realize, brother, and I want you to realize, sister, as you're going through your own difficulties, as you're weighed down with many cares and fears, that this same God cares for you too. And sometimes we may think God's got too many other concerns, too many other big things on his plate to be bothered with us. Oh, oh, surely God uh, doesn't really care about me and my little situation. Surely God must be, in fact, uh, fed up with me because I keep failing him over and over again. Surely God must abandon me after letting him down again and again. And if you're thinking that way, you are not thinking biblically. Remember what the psalmist says in Psalm 103, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Why? For he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. The idea there is is that God knows our essence. He knows that we are weak. He knows our frame. He knows we are limited. And that doesn't cause God to abandon his children, just kind of like, you know, throw up his hands in the air and just say, forget it, I'm done with these people. Instead, our situation, our plight moves him to compassion. We see that in Christ in our text here. Jesus is going to help these disciples with their fears and with their anxieties. And he, and he starts by diagnosing the specific problem. Uh, in verse 1, he, he doesn't just say, don't be troubled. What does he say specifically? Don't let your what? Don't let your hearts be troubled. The root problem to the disciples' fear and anxiety and the root problem of your fear and anxiety is found in your heart. Now, Jesus is not saying that his disciples 
then or his disciples today should just always have some sort of emotionless, uncaring, stoic attitude towards the difficulties that come our way. In fact, we've seen Jesus himself as a man of great emotion and a man of great passion. Instead, Jesus' message for them and for us is that we should not be so agitated, so distressed, so enveloped in turmoil that we can't confidently rest in the security of what God is doing in our lives. We're, we, we're, we're in this, get in this state where we are robbed of the peace and the satisfaction that is found in God. And Jesus recognizes that the problem for the anxious fear of his disciples ultimately is a problem of the heart. And he gives four remedies in our text today for a troubled heart. And the first is believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Jesus says it in verse 1, believe in God, believe also in me. J.C. Ryle, commenting on this passage, said that faith in the Lord Jesus is the only sure medicine for troubled hearts. And he's exactly right. The disciples' biggest problem was not their circumstances, as difficult and as perplexing and as painful as they were. Very often, we fall into that trap of thinking that the external situation is our biggest problem, that the trial is our biggest problem. And so, and so then we tend to think, well, if this circumstance would just go away, then all would be well in my soul. Uh, what I really need is for that to go away, or what I really need is for my body to be healed, or what I really need is for this person to stop giving me a hard time, or what I really need is for me to start making a little bit more money. But we discover here from Jesus that the cure to a troubled heart is not an immediate change of circumstance, but rather a change of heart, and specifically a change from unbelief to belief. Now, These disciples in John 14 had saving belief. They had saving faith. That's not the issue. Instead, they lacked the faith, and often we lack the faith, to confidently rest in the Lord's sovereign and good plans for our lives. So when Jesus says, believe in me, he's not saying be saved. The implication in these words is, believe that I am trustworthy. Believe that I am good. Believe that I know what I'm doing, and and what I'm doing is actually the best plan, even better than yours. Rest in that. Be confident in that. Be secure in that. That's the kind of faith that Jesus calls his disciples to uh, both then and now. Again, J.C. Ryle says, never let us forget that there are degrees in faith, and that there is a wide difference between weak and strong believers. The weakest faith is enough to give a man a saving interest in Christ and ought not to be despised, but it will not give a man such inward comfort as a strong faith. Vagueness and dimness of perception are the defect of weak believers. They do not see clearly what they believe and why they believe, and in such cases, more faith is the one thing that is needed. Like Peter on the water, they need to look more steadily to Jesus and less at the waves and the wind. I think Ryle has a very good point there. And you, most of you know this story from the Scriptures. The disciples were in a boat. They were in the storm. They were terrified. They see Jesus walking on the water. They are freaking out. And Jesus' first words to them are, take heart. It is I. Don't be afraid. In other words, don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm right here. I'm in control. I've got this and I've got you. 
And Peter says, if it's really you, Jesus, let me come out on the water with you. And Jesus is gracious. He responds to that request, and he bids him come. Peter walks on the water for a moment. Then he begins to sink. And why does he sink? Because he looks around at the circumstances, at the winds, at the waves. He takes his eyes off of Jesus, and he looks at the scary and difficult trial and circumstances around him. And and when he does that, he sinks. And after Jesus rescues Peter, what does he say? He says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And what we learn here is that belief, and again, we're not talking about saving faith. I'm talking about the kind of faith that believers are to have during difficult trials. What we learn is that belief means looking to Jesus, trusting in Jesus in spite of everything that's going on, in spite of whatever storm is raging around you, trusting Him to the point where your vision is more consumed by Him and His plans and His purposes and His promises more than anything else. The kind of faith that says, yes, this is hard, yes, this is bad, feels bad, this hurts, but Jesus is here, and in that, I can rest. Jesus says that fearful anxiety is rooted in unbelief in the heart. We don't believe that God will really care for us. We don't believe that He will really provide for us and give us everything we need. That's why Jesus says elsewhere in Matthew chapter 6, do not be anxious about your life, O you of little faith. Your heavenly Father knows what you need, and He will give it to you. We're anxious because we lack faith in God's ability or intentions to care and provide for us. Uh, Peter lacked faith in Jesus' ability or intentions to keep him from drowning. The 11 disciples lacked faith in uh, in God's good intentions for them in their trial in John 14 on that Thursday night before Jesus was crucified. And as faith decreases and we take our eyes off of Christ and His truth, what happens? Peace decreases. Our sense of security and contentment decreases. Now, if that's true, the opposite is true. And so the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 26, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. If you're struggling with anxiety, you may want to write that verse down. That's Isaiah 26, 3. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And notice in that verse, there is a condition to experiencing the perfect peace of God. What is it? It's keeping your mind fixed on God. And now, how do you do that? How do you look to Jesus? You do it through His Word, Uh, seeing God in this book, seeing His character, seeing His trustworthiness, knowing His attributes, memorizing His good promises, being reminded in this book that God is all good and all sovereign and all wise, and that He works all things together for the good of His people, and that He does it 100% of the time for His people. And that, this, this book teaches us that He is a good Father that always gives good things to His children. So it's not 99.9% of the time that God is doing His people good, but all of the time. How much would it change your life How much would it change your life if these truths about God sank even deeper into your heart? 
How much would it affect your response to the trial that you're going through right now? And and you may be thinking, well, Deemer, that sounds great, and I want that. But how? How do I increase my weak and fickle faith? What does the Scripture say about faith? Faith comes by hearing. And hearing by what? That's right, the Word of Christ. And where do we get the Word of Christ? In the Word of God. I'm going back here. Demon, you're always pointing us back to the Scripture. That's right. This is where it's at. The Word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. The Word awakens faith, not just for our initial salvation, but it continues to work powerfully and to strengthen our faith. As the psalmist says this, I love this in uh, Psalm 119, I am weary from grief, strengthen me through your word. It is the word that provides the strength that you need that will sustain you through your trials. Friends, our hearts and our minds need to be regularly filled with the truth of God for our hearts to be changed, not just once a week on Sunday. Because folks, our natural bent and our sinful flesh is to drift towards unbelief and to drift towards a lack of trust in God to take care of us, and we've got to fight to believe that truth. We have to keep going back to the Word of God over and over again, because if you're anything like me, I am thick-headed, and I've got to get this in my mind. I've got to be reminded of these things over and over again. I'm never going to get to a point, I'm not, where I'm going to say, oh, I heard this stuff before, and I don't need it. No, I need it all the time. I don't need to hear anything new. I need to hear the old, old story over and over again. We need to replace the fearful lies in our hearts that say that God can't be counted on and that God is not enough and that my plan for reality is better than God's. we, We may not articulate it that way, but often we fall into that and We need to replace those things with the truth found in His Word, and it's really a fight to do that. It really is a fight to do that. The moment you leave this building this morning or this afternoon, you will be immediately tempted to, your thoughts will be tempted to go into a direction that is contrary to the Word of God. It's really, it's a fight. It's a fight, especially when you consider that not only our flesh, but the world pulls us towards unbelief. Think about it this way. If we spend 99.9% of our time filling our heads and our hearts with ungodly music and ungodly movies and media and TV shows and talk radio and Fox News, and then we do 0.0.1% of our time putting God's Word into our minds and hearts, is it any wonder that the American church today is entangled in fear and in anxiety and in a host of other sins? Don't leave here saying that Deemer said I can't watch the news or watch a movie. You know that's not what I'm saying. Come on now. But there's a reason why the Scriptures say in Proverbs, guard your hearts, for from it flow the springs of life. Folks, whatever has a hold of your hearts, whatever your heart has the most affections for, that will control you. That's the thing that will control you. That's the thing that will become your functional God. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But if your mind is fixed on God, He will keep you in perfect peace, as the Scripture says. Now listen, of course, on this side of heaven, we're always going to struggle with this, won't we? 
there, there was only one man who perfectly trusted the Lord and, and never descended into sinful fear, and that was, of course, our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, it is God's will, according to Romans 8, that we be conformed to his image. And so we should expect and pray to that end that over time, God would gradually grow us in this area so that our troubled hearts would grow increasingly calm and at peace, even in the most trying of times. And let us be praying that God would more and more move us to be like that faith-filled man described in Psalm 112, where it says that he is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. Now, the apostle Peter, who was once a man sinking in the water because of his doubt, who was a man with a troubled heart who needed to be exhorted by Jesus in John 14, eventually Peter gets it. Many years later, Peter, writing to Christians who are persecuted and suffering because of their faith, he exhorts them in 1 Peter 5, verse 7, to humble themselves before God, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Now, because faith in God and His promises helps us to fight fear, Jesus doesn't just tell His disciples to have faith in Him in a vague, generic kind of way, but actually faith in specific promises that He will fulfill for them at the proper time. So, we are to believe in Jesus, but also specifically believe that you have a place in the Father's house. The disciples are distraught. They're going through the most intense troublesomeness of soul that they have ever experienced. And it's really fascinating how Jesus comforts them. He aims to give them comfort in the present by reminding them of their future. He says, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you? And look at the end of verse 2. Jesus says there is a specific place in the Father's house for you. So the end of their journey is not bleak. Instead, the end of it all, at the end of it all, they will be in the Father's house. The Father's house is heaven. It's home. You know, many Christians don't think much about heaven or get excited about it. Some Christians even dread heaven. Some tend to think heaven is going to be boring, right? We're going to be sitting around and uh, with a bunch of clouds and just floating around and that's not very hopeful. (laughs) That doesn't sound very exciting to me. And if that's what you think about heaven, then I understand why you may be struggling with that concept. But Jesus doesn't describe heaven as boring. He describes it as home. Now, none of us comes from a perfect home, but we all know something of what home should be, don't we? When you feel at home, when you feel at home somewhere, what does that mean? You know what that means. It means you feel like you belong means everything feels like it's in its proper place, including you. Home ideally speaks of comfort, of security, of rest. Home is a place where you are accepted, where you can have the full confidence that you are loved no matter what. Home is where the sights and sounds and smells are familiar, where the door is open and where the fire is burning. And when you enter, you are warmly received and you are warmly greeted. There is peace. There is comfort. There is safety. There is love. This is home. And friends, one of the great longings of our hearts is home. 
even in the best of homes, even if you come from one of the best of homes, you got to admit there are still times of discouragement and pain and sorrow and being disappointed and being let down. C.S. Lewis argues that if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. He's right. We were made for a better home. Our hearts break for that home. And the reason why our hearts long for this place that we have never seen is because we all know intuitively that we are a people in exile. The beginning of the Bible gives us a glimpse of the kind of home we were made for when we read about creation, uh, where God prepared a beautiful place for the first humans, Adam and Eve. The place was called Eden, which means delight. It was a place of total joy and pleasure and belonging with no pain or sickness or sorrow or death, a, a place where there was perfect harmony and unity between man and woman and between God and man. That was home for us. You can read about it in the first two chapters of the Bible. That was home, and it's the home that we all long for. I don't care what race or from what cultural background you're from, rich or poor, religious or irreligious, we all have this desire for this perfect home. And the question is, how do we get back there? How do we get back home? Friends, that's what the redemption story in the Bible is all about. It's the, it's the classic there and back again story, if you're a Tolkien fan like I am. This book shows us the way back home. And Jesus, looking to comfort His disciples who are going through this dark night of the soul, the very first thing He wants them to be assured of is their future. He's saying to them, what you're going through now, Peter, James, John, and Thomas, what you're going through now is not the end-all, be-all. The, the pain and the trial and the affliction that you face is not the end of the story. Remember where this is all headed, disciples. Remember where we are going, Harbin's Church. Where we are going is home. So lay hold of that truth. And don't let your hearts be hardened. Well, don't let your hearts be hardened, but don't let them be troubled either. Believe in Jesus. Believe that you have a place in the Father's house. And also believe that Jesus is going to prepare that place for you. The main reason the disciples are upset is because Jesus is leaving them. And now we know the whole story, so it's easy for us to not be sympathetic of their situation, but let's put ourselves back in their sandals. These men have put everything on the line for Jesus. They have given up three years of their life following Him. They have banked all on Him, being taught by Him for three years, enjoying His presence and His comfort. And now it's all coming to an end. He's talking about going away. Of course they're troubled. But look at what Jesus says, verse 2, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus says, don't be troubled. I'm not going to abandon you. I'm, I'm going so I can prepare this special dwelling place for you in my Father's house. Now, some older translations say mansions. My, in my Father's house are 
many mansions. That's not the best translation. Uh, that word mansion has changed over time. And so when we think of a mansion, we think of just some big old house. So you'll sometimes hear Christians talking about how they can't wait to get their mansion in heaven. Folks, I don't want to live in a separate mansion. I, I don't want to live in my own house. I want to be where the Father is. I want to live in His house. And that's precisely Jesus' point. A first century Jewish man betrothed to a maiden, would spend the engagement period making preparations for his bride. And you know what he would do? He would spend that time adding on to his father's house, making a place. And when the preparations were complete, and it may take a while, it may take a year, but after that time of separation, he would return to his bride, he would get her and take her to this special dwelling place in his father's house. That kind of language would have carried that kind of connotation in the ears of His first-century Jewish disciples. Jesus is saying, I am leaving, and I know you want to be with me, but you can't get into my Father's house until I make some necessary preparations. Now, sometimes Christians look at this passage, and they don't know exactly what that means. And so they envision Jesus with a hammer and some nails and he's working on some additions to the Father's house. And I think that's what's meant by preparations. Jesus is a carpenter after all. But that's not what Jesus has in mind. Think about it. He's going to prepare a place for them. What needs to be prepared? What needs prepared is an open door to your place in the Father's house. And right now, that door is locked tight to sinners. Think back with me again to those opening chapters of the Bible and this beautiful paradise that God made for Adam and Eve, this beautiful house. And we know the story. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve reject the Father and, and rejected everything the Father has for them in the house, and they rebel against God. And what's the penalty for their rebellion against God? Well, God said, the day that you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. And part of that death involved exile. They are banished from the Garden of Eden because there can be no sin in the Father's house. There can only be goodness. So their sin separated them from God. And we see a vivid illustration of that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. A lot of times people get fascinated about that, especially kids. Oh, a flaming sword, an angel with a flaming sword. That's cool. Don't miss the point of all of that. The point is, is that the way back into the garden was blocked to Adam and Eve because they rejected the truth of God's Word and because they, and, and they were denied access to the tree of life. And we have followed in their footsteps too as children of Adam. We too, as rebellious sinners, find ourselves exiled from home. But Jesus turns to the disciples, and look at what He says to them in verse 6. I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. There is no way to get back home. There is no way to get to the Father except through Jesus. Who, in less than 24 hours from this conversation, will prepare a place for His people by being crucified? 
Jesus is going to bear the sin of the world. He's going to experience the fullness of the death penalty that God warned Adam and Eve about, a physical death and a spiritual death. With our sin on Jesus, Jesus suffers the exile. Jesus suffers the banishment from the presence of God that we deserve, and that exile climaxed in hell. And so on the, on the cross, Jesus experiences hell. On the cross, for the first time in eternity, Jesus is not at home with the Father. He is totally separated as he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus will endure this and pay this price so that the payment will count for all who believe in Jesus. When you believe in Jesus, your debt to God has been paid in full, and every obstacle that bars the way to the Father and to His house has been done away with. So, don't let your hearts be troubled, James, John, and Thomas, and Peter. Don't, don't let your hearts be troubled, Harbin's church. Do not be troubled, Peter, who will deny me three times before the rooster crows. Your sin, your unworthiness will not mean that your place in God's house will be locked shut. Believe in God. Believe in Jesus. He has not gone to abandon us, but to prepare the way so that the doors to your heavenly home are flung wide open. Revelation chapter 21 describes our new home where it says that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And in the very next chapter of Revelation, the apostle John describes heaven, and he mentions something that we haven't seen in the Bible since Genesis chapter 3, which is the tree of life. It's back. We saw at the very beginning of the Bible, we're cast out of the garden, we're locked away from that, pops up again at the very end of the book. The tree of life, it says in Revelation 22, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Sounds kind of like the garden. Sounds like paradise. Sounds like home. So believe in Jesus. Believe that you have a place in the Father's house. Believe that Jesus is going to prepare that place for you. And finally, believe that you will dwell there with Jesus Himself. Go back again to verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to Myself that where I am, you may be also. Notice here that when Jesus says that now, the, 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 the focus is changing uh, from a place to a person. And that's really important. What's the best thing about heaven? Think about that for a moment. What is the best thing about heaven? People sometimes say, man, I can't wait to get to heaven because I won't be fat anymore. <laughs> I'll have a glorified, resurrected body, and I'll be able to eat all I want, and I'll be fine. Some say, I can't wait to, to get to heaven because at least uh, finally at that time, that I'll just be at peace, man. Others talk about exploring the universe, uh, exploring all the great things that they'll be able to see and do in heaven. Many of us look forward to being reunited with departed loved ones. Many of us look forward to meeting the saints of old who have gone before us. I 
Can't wait to meet King David. Got a lot of questions for him. And you know what? There's going to be many things to enjoy and experience in heaven. No question about it. It will not be boring. But the best thing about heaven is that Jesus says, I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. How encouraging is that? One of the great themes of the Bible is God's great desire to personally dwell with His people in a good land, in a secure land, in a safe land, in a land of rest. And so as you read the Bible story, you're, you're going you're to see these, these themes popping up continuously. <clears throat> when you're reading through Genesis, after man is exiled from the garden, it's only a few chapters later that the Bible immediately starts talking about a future place, a future rest, a future home for the people of God where they will dwell with their God and God will dwell with them. And so you move to Genesis chapter 12 and God is promising to Abraham that God's people are going to dwell in the land of Canaan, <clears throat> a prosperous land a good land flowing with milk and honey. And on their way to Canaan, God has the people construct this massive tent, this tabernacle, and in the tabernacle, the presence of God would dwell with the people in a special way. But all of those things were just types and shadows. All of those things that we see, the, the garden, the land of Canaan, the tabernacle, the temple, they're pointing us to something better. And in the fullness of time, something amazing happens. Gospel of John tells us in chapter 1 that Jesus, called the Word, became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. And as good as that was, now He's gone. But something better is coming. And the saints of old knew it. The author of Hebrews knew it. The author of Hebrews tells us that those men and women in the Old Testament who hoped in the promises of God were looking forward to a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. They desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, the author of Hebrews says, God's not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. And so you get to that climactic moment at the end of the Bible where the Apostle John, that same John whose heart was troubled that dark Thursday night, that same John, when he is an old man, he's on the island of Patmos writing the book of Revelation, and he sees the glorious future of the people of God, and, and he, writes, he writes that he hears this in, in Revelation 21, a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He'll be with them. This is not the God of, of deism, that, that, that ridiculous philosophy that, that assumes, yeah, there's a God and He made everything, but now He's checked out and has nothing to do with us and doesn't care. No, God will be with His people. He will not be distant. He will not be aloof. There will be no separation. He will dwell with them forever. And that is the best news of all. You see, another reason why we don't look forward to heaven is because we don't fully understand the glory of that verse. We don't fully understand that Jesus Christ, 
that Jesus is a treasure that is superior to all the other things that we could possess. In Christ, in Christ, there is a superior pleasure to all the other pleasures that we could enjoy. Christ is the one whom David speaks of when he writes in Psalm 16, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 1611, write that one down and memorize it for the sake of your troubled heart. You see, if we went to heaven and it had everything we could possibly want, but it didn't have Jesus, guess what? It wouldn't be heaven. It it wouldn't fully satisfy us and give us what we need. And, And so we would still feel the cravings and the longings in our heart, those cravings that need to be fulfilled, that can only be fulfilled in Christ. Now, why does Jesus do what he does here in John 14? Why in the midst of the disciples' present trial does he talk about a future home? The reason is because the only way that we can make it through the turmoil of the present is to have confident assurance about the future. It is is the knowledge of our destiny and faith in the promises, the future promises of God that will help us view our present afflictions rightly and not be totally overwhelmed or destroyed by them. And when we get a hold of these promises about our future, about our destiny, and when those promises really get a hold of us, it can become a very powerful weapon to slay everything from anxiety to fear to covetousness and worldliness. And it can release in us what John Piper likes to call a radical risk-taking love that is willing to pour out your life in service to Jesus and others here and now. A better grasp of and confidence in your future destiny as a child of God is going to release in you a ridiculous level of obedience to God in this life. And when I say ridiculous, I mean that in a good way. Ridiculous to the watching world. Why is he putting his life on the line like that? Why is he going to an unreached people group overseas where they chop the heads off of believers to tell them about Jesus? Why is he, why is he talking about Jesus to his co-workers and they're mocking him and ridiculing him? Why would, they, why would he want to put up with that? Well, again, going back to Hebrews 11, we we have an example of how faith and confidence in the future of what God has for us releases extreme, on-the-edge, insane obedience for God right now. And so, Hebrews 11 says, let me give you one example here about Moses. It says, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. That is utterly ridiculous. Who does that? You are a prince of Egypt, Moses. You've got access to all the treasures of Egypt, all the pleasures of Egypt, all of the ease and comfort and luxury and entertainment and sin that you could possibly enjoy. Why would you do that? Answer, he considered the reproach of Christ, the reproach of Christ, greater wealth 
than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid. Right? We're talking about fear and anxiety. By, by faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king. He was looking to the reward, and that drove out fear. He was looking to the reward. He was looking to that heavenly city, that better country. And when he sees the treasures of Egypt that he could enjoy for 70 years, compared to the superior treasure of Christ that he could enjoy for 70 trillion years and more, he considers it no contest. I'm going for a better treasure. I will gladly pour out my life in service for God and for others and even be persecuted right now. If it means a few decades of discomfort, I can handle that. If it means the king kills me, okay. If he kills me, I'll just hit the jackpot and cash in early and enjoy everything God has for me in heaven. Either way, I win. To live is Christ. To die is gain. To die is gain. So, therefore, in light of those promises in the Scripture, I will gladly give 80 years of my life, giving everything I have to serve God and serve and love others, knowing that an eternity of maximum glory and joy is just around the corner. And, of course, there is a joy in Christ even now as we serve Him in our affliction, as the Apostle Paul writes elsewhere We are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And in light of all those things, it's why the Apostle Paul, who is no stranger to affliction and trouble, could write as he did in 2 Corinthians 4. Look at this. For this light momentary affliction. Now, if you know the life of the Apostle Paul, you're thinking light light affliction? (laughs) Being beaten within an inch of his life? being stoned, being hounded from city to city, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I don't think he's saying that the pain and persecution that he went through didn't hurt. I'm sure it did a lot but he views it as light when he sees it in light of the eternal weight of glory that is coming. That really changes your perspective. He says in Romans 8, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's why Paul didn't commit suicide when things got really bad for him but kept on loving, kept on serving, kept on giving, because he knew it was a blip on the radar screen compared to what was coming to him later on in eternity. There is no way Paul could have done what he did for the gospel and endured what he endured and do it with contentment and joy if he did not understand that that was his future. Paul needed to know that. These 11 disciples in John 14 needed to know that as Jesus was about to to send them on mission into a a hostile world to turn the world upside down, they needed to know what, what Jesus was doing for them and the promises that were coming their way. And you need to know 
these things as well so that your afflictions will not paralyze you in despair, but instead will be seen in light of the eternal weight of glory that is coming your way. I am zeroing in on a landing here. We're close. And you've done a great job hanging with me through this. In light of all of those things, let not your hearts be troubled, disciples, at Harbin's church. Believe in God. Believe also in Jesus. There is a hope and a future for you. Your current trials and troubles do not mean that God has abandoned you. It doesn't mean that something has gone wrong. Acts 14.22 says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. He's already told you how things are going to go down for the next few years before you enter into glory. But know this, if you are a believer, remember that there is a place prepared in the Father's house for you. One day, Jesus will come and he will take you back with him so that where he is, you will also be. Let that hope sustain you and encourage your troubled heart as you wait. Let that hope fuel your radical, risk-taking, loving service to Jesus and to the world in the meantime. As long as you are on planet Earth, your aim needs to be not for yourself, but to go out into a lost and dying world to an exiled people and to show them the way home as you have found the way home in Christ. Point lost and wandering people the right way. Point them to Jesus because He is the way home. He said, I am the way. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, there is something for you in all of this as well. I've been speaking a lot to believers this morning, but if you're not a Christian, let me ask you this. Are you prepared to deal with the reality that not only did Jesus go away, but that you also will go away? All of us will. We will all die. Are you prepared for that? And when you do die, will you find that there is a room prepared for you in the Father's house? Friend, if you persist in your rebellion against God, there won't be. And the penalty for that persistent rebellion will be permanent eternal exile in hell, where you will be forever shut out of the home that your heart longs for. You don't want that, do you? Why, why go through that? Why at the end of the long and hard journey of this life would you want to find, at the end of the road, doors that are bolted shut? Friend, you want to be home. You want to be in the Father's house. And so my encouragement to you this morning is the words that Jesus had for his disciples. Believe in God. Believe also in Jesus. Turn away from your sin. Trust in him. Receive his sacrifice for the payment for your sins so that when you get to the end of the long and hard journey of this life, you will find that at the end of the road is a home and the doors will be open, and you will be greeted, and a seat for you will be at the table. A place will be prepared for you. Your name will be known, and the one that will welcome you into this happy, eternal dwelling place is Jesus himself, and you will live there in comfort and safety forever because you will finally be home.
Let's pray.